Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast, all about constructing your career in neurology. I'm your host, Sarah Schaefer from the Yale School of Medicine. And today, as part of the Finances of Career series, we will be talking about RVUs or relative value units with Rohit Marawar, who is an assistant professor of neurology at Wayne State University, and Mark Neuer who is the department head of neurophysiology at UCLA and serves nationally on the CPT and relative value unit committee advisory panels that publish CPT codes and set RVUs. Thank you for joining us, both of you. You're welcome. Yeah, fantastic to be here. Thank you. Well, let's start for the uninitiated with a very basic question. What is an RVU? And, you know, looking into this in anticipation of this podcast, I learned that there are actually different types of RVUs. Mark, can you get us started? Yes. Let's take even one step backward. The overall system for RVUs was called the relative value system. It started back in the 80s when people noticed that there was different charges that were filed by different physicians, the charge in one city might be 10 times as much as the charge in a neighboring city for exactly the same procedure. So a decision was made, we need to set the value of procedures. So how would we do that? Well, we come up with a assessment that's run by the American Medical Association together with Medicare that looks at the cost or effort or time for a biophysician, looks at the practice expenses, looks at the malpractice expenses, and together those three can be a total. And these, the the values that are calculated are referred to as relative value units. That's the basis of this resource-based relative value scale that helps to straighten out gross differences in charges from physician to physician as in the old days. The physician work RVU is the one that most physicians are mostly familiar with because physician work RVUs also are used by many organizations to reimburse physicians. They want to know about productivity. So if you're at a university that uses RVUs to set productivity, you're part of the research-based relative value scale. And the other types of RVUs that you mentioned, the practice expense RVUs and malpractice RVUs, what are those? Are those individual to individual practice based? How do they actually relate to what the physician needs to know? Well, let's talk about how each of these gets set. The physician work RVUs are set with a survey called the RUC survey of physicians who are from the specialties that provide a particular service, like let's say for EEG. So a survey is sent out when those codes are going to be reassessed. The results of the survey help set what the physician work RVUs are. So physician work is set based on the practitioners in a field saying how many hours or how many minutes are spent with each step in the process before the patient is tested, during the patient testing, after the patient is testing, to write the report, etc. That's physician work in RVUs, which is really based in minutes. Practice expense is 
what it costs to run your practice. Of course, people might game the system a lot in any survey of how much it costs to run your practice. So at American Medical Association, a outside vendor, a accounting firm was hired with CMS's Medicare's input to go out and ask a large number of practices to submit their internal revenue service tax reports. On the basis of those tax reports, it's felt one can calculate how much it costs to run that practice. So IRS tax forms were used to set how much does it cost for that particular procedure or that particular specialty to do the work. In neurology, it's usually around 42 to 45 percent of the overall total payment is in practice expense, meaning that's almost as important as the physician work in setting how much money is paid to a private practitioner to provide a service. For malpractice, the CMS Medicare surveyed the carriers within each individual state or region, and they set the typical malpractice cost for the typical physician in a particular specialty in a particular region. So Northern California is maybe different than Southern California. And uh, that's usually maybe for surgical specialties, more like 6% of the overall cost. For neurology, it's more like 1% to 2% of the overall RVUs. And you talked a little bit about the history of incorporating our RVUs into the medical model in terms of reimbursements and charges being completely different even in neighboring areas. How was this incorporated into the system? What's the rest of the history there? Well, once you have RVUs, there's a a need to convert that into dollars. If you're a Medicare intermediary or you're a commercial payer, you can use those RVU numbers and convert them into how much you're going to pay. So to do that, there is a gypsy or geographic practice expense factor and a conversion factor that's used. A gypsy ratchets upward or downward the amount of RVUs that are credited depending on the cost of living in a particular place. For Iowa, it's less. For New York City, it's more. So it's a cost of living adjustment. And then a big factor is the conversion factor. Each year, Medicare sets what they believe is the correct conversion factor to convert an RVU number to an actual dollar figure. The dollar figures then are applied to each of the various CPT codes, procedures, and that's how much they're going to pay in that locality for that procedure. The conversion factor is national. So each year, it's set And right now, it's around $35 per RVU. So if you get a total RVU of 1.0, Medicare will pay you $35, a little bit less in Iowa, a little bit more in New York. So the Gypsy or the regionally based modifier, I assume that's based in part on practice expenses differing between different regions? Yes. So Medicare goes out and identifies costs such as the average cost of rental for an office rental site, or the average cost of labor for the kinds of labor used in that practice. And the conversion factors, are these types of calculations also used by other payers, other insurance companies with different conversion factors? Well, there's two different directions to go with conversion factor. One is each carrier can set different conversion factors. So United might pay 
not $35 for that procedure. They might pay $50. Blue Cross might pay $45. They, they all have their different conversion factors. And in fact, it differs from practice to practice too. So you might get a contract with Blue Cross that says we're going to pay you at a conversion factor of, let's say, uh, $40 per RVU. And the next guy, one building over, is getting a contract that says I'll pay you $45 per RVU. You often will hear debate about the politics of the conversion factor because Medicare tends to set it low because that helps keep the Medicare budget neutral from year to year. The Medicare budget is expected to increase as the number of people on Medicare increases, plus a little bit of an adjustment for cost of living, but it tends to run low. As an example, when this all came out originally around 1992, the conversion factor was $32 per RVU. And I told you now it's about 35. Think of that. In 30 years, the payment has gone up about 10%. That's way below what it actually is in inflation. Every year, Congress has to get involved to boost this conversion factor because Medicare tries to set it low. And then all the medical societies appeal to Congress to push it higher. And Congress tries to not break the budget. So they pick some middle number, but it takes a congressional action to actually set the conversion factor many years. Wow. This is very complicated. (laughs) Can you tell me where RVUs are used. Is this just a United States thing or is it used in other places, other countries? And are there environments within the U.S. where RVUs are not really part of the billing process? Kaiser, which is an HMO or the VA? Uh, RVUs are used within the United States in the way in which it's currently set. No one else actually picks up our numbers and uses it elsewhere, to the best of my knowledge. But other groups have fee schedules. Like in Canada, there is a fee schedule. It says, this is how much we pay in Ontario for an EEG. Might be different in Quebec. Other countries in Europe have been looking at the U.S. and trying to copy some of the processes that we use here. Further talking about the use of the RVUs widely in the U.S., it's a productivity measure. So while you as an individual neurologist might not run into it as part of the payment that comes to your university practice or large multi-specialty practice because you're paid a salary, nevertheless, you may find that you're judged on how productive are you in a given year. So the physician work RVUs will be used to say, well, You did this many level three visits, this many level four visits, this many level five visits, and it all calculates out in physician work RVUs to be a certain number. In university practice, that number might be around 4,600 RVUs per year. And then your university will turn around or your large multi-specialty group will turn around and say, okay, we're paying you this amount of money every year as your salary, and we're paying you your benefits but we expect you to make 4,600 work RVUs each year. And if you come out short, we may ratchet your salary down a bit, or we'll find a way to assign you greater amounts of work. The flip side of that is that the same universities or practices may say, 
Well, if you exceed your target RVUs, we'll pay you more money. You'll get a bonus each year. They may say, well, we'll pay you $25 per RVU. Now, Rohit, can you tell us a little bit about your own experiences as you've worked in several practice models in and how you've thought through RVUs in the negotiation side of things, how it's affected your income and and how it's affected your day-to-day? I think uh, let's start with the physician contract aspect of it. It's very important to know, first of all, what is reasonable. If you are expected to have an annual work RVU uh, expectation, what is reasonable? And then that in, that is where MGMA uh, data can be very helpful. You know, not many people know this, but you can actually get the MGMA data from your university library for free. And everyone should have access to that. The other thing that you should know is, uh, and to confirm, is that the dollar value attached to each work RVU is reasonable and consistent with what you should be paid for that particular location and for your particular specialty. And I would say that it should at least be 50th percentile as per MGMA standards. I think if it's below 50th percentile, think twice before you sign on the dotted line. The third point I would like to make is that your base salary and productivity should be guaranteed at least for the first year uh, and maybe more in certain cases. I think that provides you a little bit of buffer as you try and establish your practice for specifically for IMGs and J-1 visa waiver jobs. The contract should guarantee the base salary guaranteed for three years because that's the duration of the contract for any J-1 visa waiver job. The fourth point I want to bring up is the bonuses. As Dr. Neuer mentioned, that if you go above your assigned work RVU annual productivity, then the dollar per RVU, per dollar per bonus RVU, what should that be? Now, I have seen different uh, models for this. The first job that I worked at, which was uh, in a community hospital, the dollar per RVU value was the same as, uh, for the bonus, was the same as the dollar per baseline RVU. And to me, that makes the most sense. But since then, as I've interviewed in other other positions and uh, in other jobs, I've realized that that's not a necessarily a standard. So the for the bonus RVU, the dollar per RVU value might be, might be lower than the baseline RVU value. It might be 20%, it might be 35%, it might be 50%. And I think that's where uh, kind of it, it behooves you to get more information about what is standard for that area, for that location, and for uh, that particular specialty. Can I just go back and touch on the MGMA? Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us exactly what that is and where it comes from? MGMA is a survey that is countrywide. And I think it comes out every year. So there is a percentile salary for each specialty, each geographic location. So a 50th percentile salary means that obviously 50% of the uh, physicians in that particular location and in that particular specialty, at least that much money in a particular year. So a 50th percentile is would be considered kind of medium. And that is at least what should be a guaranteed base salary in, in the major, in the, in your physician contract. But obviously with, with sometimes with location, depending on the academic practice versus private practice, that might vary. And are our views also within the MGMA? data? Yes, they are differentiated by the percentile. We have talked about this a little bit in some of our other 
episodes about contract negotiation. So that's a good reminder of how that's related. When a physician actually sits down to try to bill, what do they need to know about how an RVU is determined and what kinds of things lead to more or less RVUs? The RVU structure is published. It's quite openly on the internet. Uh, You can find it amongst some of the many Medicare values that are posted by your local Medicare carrier. But another good place to look would be with the national societies, because they also publish RVU values, a whole schedule of what these are worth. Like the EEG Society, ACNS, publishes a list that includes all the EEG services as well as physician visits. AAN publishes a list. In there, you can see how much different services are worth. In recent years, those numbers went up. Uh, There was a negotiation to resurvey physician work. The survey, let's say for level five, for physician work, return patient went up by about 30%. And that kicked in when those new rules for documentation standards kicked in a year and a half ago. So we're actually getting a bit higher now than we did traditionally. Can I ask you a a more detailed question about those encounter levels? We are going to do a separate podcast on billing and coding, but just in terms of the RVU increases with encounter level, do they increase at a standard RVU increase for each level from one to two, two to three, three to four, or are there diminishing returns as you get to higher levels in terms of, you know, is there a bigger jump between level two and three than there is between level three and four? Well, they're actually set using those surveys that I talked about. So they're not set with a a rationalization of doing any particular ratio. But I can tell you what some of the numbers are. For level three, outpatient established return visit, uh, it's 1.3. For level four, it's 1.9. And for level five, it's 2.8. They don't really form a the logical ratio. I see. That makes sense. If I might add, I think for established there's a big jump going from level four to level five, but not so much level three to level four. And when you look at the new outpatient clinic visits, the the, the ratio is similar. So level three is 1.6, level four is 2.6, and level five is 3.5. So the jumps are similar. So as Dr. Neuer said, there is no rationale to this, and it will change every time there is a new RVU values uh, that can come out. So we talked about the standard RVUs that are assigned to each level, but as anybody who's done billing knows, there are various modifiers. For example, I do Botox injections, and I bill for chemodenervation of the neck muscles, and then I can put a modifier if I did bilateral injections. And then there are other modifiers, like uh, putting a modifier that a trainee was with you during the encounter that my understanding is have no effect on payment. Can you talk a little bit about how modifiers affect the RVUs? Sure. There's several kinds of modifiers. In fact, there's a list of about 100 different modifiers, most of which never are encountered by neurologists. So let's just talk about the common ones that uh, our practices see. To me, uh, one of the first ones you run into is the GC modifier. I had a trainee participating in this survey. 
They weren't just watching. They actually did some of the work. It does not affect the payment at all. It just lets the Medicare people or whoever's looking at it at the far end, it lets them know a trainee was involved. Another common one you mentioned is for some of our procedures, uh, there is a code uh, for bilateral. In that case, it does increase probably by about 50% the amount of money that you're going to get. The idea of using a modifier is that you shouldn't be paid twice as much for doing it bilaterally because it's not twice the work to do it bilaterally. You don't have to inform, do an informed consent of the patient twice. You don't have to do uh, your cleanup twice. There's a lot of things that you only do like one and a half times. Another example of a modifier is 26. Modifier 26 says, I'm interpreting a study. So if you do an EMG in the hospital or you read an EEG where the hospital lab ran the test, you can't bill for the whole EEG. You can only bill for the professional component of the EMG or the EEG. And that's modifier 26. It says, I only did the physician component. I didn't run the test. Uh, for procedures like an EEG, if you do it in the office, you don't use the modifier if you're paying the tech and you bought the equipment. Then you get the entire reimbursement for the EEG. The technical component, which is the non-professional part, for an EEG is three quarters of the overall cost. There are many other modifiers. Where might somebody who's new to all of this find all these modifiers so that they know that they're maximizing their RVUs? They probably need to work with somebody who's already familiar with this in their practice. If you're doing a fellowship, uh, you may learn from your supervising attending. If you move to a new institution, uh, a new large group, they may have somebody who is a an auditor whose real job is to get people to do it right, not to audit you and punish you, but to, to make sure you're, you're using the right modifiers, you're using the right codes so that the bills go out correctly. Dr. Neuer touched on this as a kind of a practical application of or practical way to learn. RVUs, I think, is important to start as a trainee. Uh, learn from a, your attendings and when you are at least a junior faculty to find a mentor for uh, for these things, for billing and coding. So many uh, people that I, uh, that I meet and that I interact with don't really understand the the basics of our views and billing and coding. And this is such a high ill topic. You know, a few hours that you spend studying and understanding this can have a big impact on your career. Absolutely. That's why we're doing these podcasts <laughs> <laughs> to get everybody up to speed. I remember as a trainee hearing the words RVU or the term RVU and thinking, what on earth is that? And even now I get you know, a report every single month about the RVUs that I've earned. And I, I hardly look at it because I don't have a very good concept of how it impacts my own salary and day to day. I figure they'll, t they'll tell me if I go below the target. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think I, I should say that uh, my first encounter with billing and coding and our views came from Dr. Newer when I was a fellow with him. So this is a nice uh, full circle moment. Mark, do you have any other 
things that you think our listeners need to know about this introduction to RVUs and how RVUs might relate to their practice of medicine in their daily lives? One important consideration is, are you in an academic practice or are you in a community practice? Because the targets are generally different. Academic practices assume that there's a lot of non-billable time and other things that a physician is doing. So the targets for a academic practice are lower. For an academic practice, it might be around 4,500 RVUs per year as your 75th percentile of MGMA, Medical Group Management Association. If you're in a community practice, it's about 6,400 RVUs per year, which is substantially higher. And that differentiation is spelled out in the MGMA data? Yeah, there's two MGMA surveys one of academic practices and another of community practices. Rohit, any uh, parting words? And specifically, I want to ask you, you talked about how you've learned about RVUs and and self-taught about billing and coding. What kinds of resources would you recommend to our listeners that might be a little green in this area. I think AAN has some great resources. So that would be my first uh, suggestion. You, uh, the billing and coding or the auditing person in your in your department or in your, in your university is a great educational resource. Have them come uh, give your department a lecture. Have a uh, have a assigned person in your department who uh, a physician in your department who can lead this, the billing and coding thing and uh, have them teach the residents and fellows. Uh, in my department, that's me. But I think I've learned a lot as I've taught other people. Yeah, as I said, this is this is an important thing to just spend some time on and educate yourself. Great. Thank you both for taking your time today to talk to us about this important topic. I think we kept it interesting, even though it can be a little dry talking about uh, relative value units and billing and coding. But these are, again, very important topics for anybody starting out in the medical world in the United States to understand. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast is created and produced by myself, Sarah Schaefer. It is not recorded as an official podcast of any institution or organization. This podcast is unfunded. Opinions are those of the individual participants. Music by Audrey Nath. Artwork by Shivani Goshal. Want more content like this? Be sure to subscribe to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast wherever you get your podcasts to hear more about constructing your career in neurology. Follow us on Twitter at NeuroBolts and on Facebook at Neurology Nuts and Bolts to stay up to date on new content and give us feedback on what you want to hear and tell your friends. Thanks for joining us.